Welcome to another episode of Float Your Boat. I'm with the inimitable... Oh, you want me to yes, say something? I actually want you to tell Brett people Brett Pattinson. And I'm George Sabados. Welcome back, everyone. Pretty Hello, boy. Listeners. Hello, listeners. Pretty boy, who do we have on today? Today we have a lady named Lisa, Dr. Lisa Milner. So what is she a doctor of and what is she famous for? She's got her PhD from the University of Wollongong and has been teaching at Southern Cross University since 2004 in the School of Arts and Social Sciences. Okay, so why do we have her on our show? Today we're going to be talking about a book that she's got out Mm -hmm. uh, on a woman named Frida Brown. Frida Brown, that sounds vaguely familiar. Frida Brown was an activist in Australia, I guess, a political activist. That's why it sounds familiar. You went to a um, um, a celebration of her her life and works, yeah? Or was it the book launch? That was the book launch. Oh, you yeah. went to the book launch. Yeah. Tell, what what did you discover when you were there? I discovered that she should really be a national treasure. She has done right? so much. She, uh, the the woman is amazing. I think the best thing to do is get Lisa to tell us all about. Frida and her book and this is yeah. a sort of a, a two part one part episode in that we're going to get Kilty O'Brien to come in right because it's Kilty O'Brien who we've had on the show yes her, what about her? grandmother oh wow <laughs> long line of and Kilty's mother is Lee Rhiannon long line of activists and her great great grandparents were also uh, union leaders I think they started the first workers' union in Australia. What a fantastic heritage. So let's get Lisa in and, and let, okay. let her tell the story. Okay, wonderful. Let's do that. Float Your Boat podcast about how everyday people created their road to success. The highs, the lows, pitfalls and potholes and how they overcame it all. And now, here are your hosts. So Lisa, tell us um, what motivated you to to write the book? Well, um, I've been a labour historian for about 30 years and I've always looked at Um, things that have been on the intersection between politics and culture. So things like films that have been made about activists, for example. Um, Back in 2011, I was looking around for a new research topic and I came across a biography that was a filmed version. So this is a part of an SBS series called Australian Biography. Yes. Looking through the... um, subjects, they included people like Margaret Whitlam, Charles Perkins, people that the biography called prominent Australians. And then I came across this one about this woman called Frida Brown. Now, because it just briefly listed that she'd been a political activist and she'd been a member of the Communist Party, uh, I was immediately interested. And when I went to watch the film, I was really stunned at her achievements and why 
uh, more people, particularly in Australia, didn't know about Frida. So that's really what got me started on doing the research for six years and writing the book. Now it's obviously um, it's obviously a, a very detailed um, uh, piece of work. Um, you the title of the book is Swimming Against the Tide. Explain to us what you what you discovered about Frida Brown in the process of doing your research. Well, I discovered that, like everyone in the world, she had they, she had many sides to her. One side of her was, as I just earlier explained, that she'd been in the Communist Party and, and was therefore, in many people's eyes, on another side of history. But whilst I was looking through her family stories, talking to members of her family, I found out that for most of her life she loved swimming. She spent a whole lot of time at Bondi with her family and um, always came back to the beach at Bondi when, as often as she can when she was back in Australia and had a swim as a way of, of connecting her home to her life. So I thought that... Um, Swimming against the tide might be um, a quite irrelevant topic um, to title my book for. So, she was a keen body surfer. Am I correct in that, um, yep. Lisa? That's right. Her father had taught her how to body surf back in the 1920s and 30s, and um, her husband and her daughter loved to body surf as well as her grandkids. So it was a real family thing, and a lot of time was spent um, with her parents, with her brothers, with her husband, with her daughter and grandchildren over the course, whole course of the 20th, 20th century, really, uh, at Bondi Beach and for, also at Wiley's Baths at Bondi. That was a really popular, that swimming bath there. Right. Wow, it's, um, you, you know, somebody as remarkable as her, you know, the simple pleasures in life were more important to her in some ways than her, her career. Absolutely, and she was always a really modest person. She didn't sort of crave the high life. She never wore expensive clothes. She never wore makeup in her life uh, or much jewellery at all. And she really loved simple pleasures in life. And to her, the most important pleasure in life was her family. Sounds like my kind of girl. Um, <laughs> she was she was born in nineteen nineteen. So that was uh, you know it was. Probably the beginning of, um, you know, the immense... Well, it was soon after the, the emancipation of women, the right to vote. Um, you know, how how is it that she was shaped into this political, um, I guess, activist, if you want... If you call her anything. But what shaped her in the early years? Well, she, it certainly wasn't any surprise that she ended up um, being a political activist. She was born into um, a very politically active household, which is on the side of her father. Her father, Ben Lewis, was um, a member of the International Workers of the World, or a lot of people know them as Wobblies, and he was very, very outspoken in his defence of um, anti-conscription laws and um, rights for unemployed and working people um, in the first half of the century. He was... Um, high up in the Unemployed Workers' Union, and from a very early age he took Frida, who was his oldest child, along to political discussions. Um, <coughs> their household was always full of um, political conversations um, and comment about what was going on in Australia and the world around them. And growing up in the Depression, Frida and her brothers and her parents 
had a very, very impoverished life in Erskineville, uh, um, a very poor inner-city slum yes. in those days, quite different to, to the, um, the way that suburb is now. Yes. Um, but because she grew up in this incredibly intense milieu of political activism combined with the, the absolutely... Um, um, preventable deprivations that the depression brought to many Australians. It's certainly no surprise that she grew up as a political activist. She um, she was married, wasn't she, um, Lisa? Yes, yeah, she was. Uh, when she was about 17 years old, she met Bill Brown um, at the New Theatre, where they were both um, very enthusiastic volunteers. Um, and a few years after that, they married. It was just before World War II started, um, and Frida actually um, converted Bill to communism. Wow! So, I get I get the um, the nature of the the conversation around the dinner table in the, in her household, but um, why uh, the attraction to uh, communism? Well, um, originally, I think when Frida was a very young teenager, she she was um, looking at the world politically along the lines of her father, who was sometimes a Labor supporter, sometimes an anarchist, I think. Um, but it was when she joined the New Theatre um, in 1936 that she was surrounded by really, really active communists who were very keen to talk to her about it. And they argued with her and gradually... Their arguments won over her dad's arguments and she became a communist and joined the Communist Party at the age of 17, which is pretty young. Uh, and she remained um, a communist all her life. And it's what uh, most Australians today would not, um, might be surprised by. Um, would you say that communism and, and the number of supporters in this country was quite, quite big prior to World War II? Oh, absolutely. Um, it had about 40,000 members in the late 1930s, but only about 200 of them were women. And that was a very unusual thing for Frida as a very, very young woman to join the Communist Party and also to rise up so quickly within its ranks. She was um, very ambitious in her own way and she was um, obviously well suited to the political life. Um, and so, yes, certainly back in the um, pre-war days, the Communist Party um, was very anti-fascist party in those days, uh, mm. even when the Australian government was pro-fascist before things turned in the early part of World War Two. Yes. The Communist Party was very popular then. And, and, and how would you describe her as a, as a person? Um, like, what was her personality like? Was she a firebrand? Was she, um, uh, you know... What's the best way that you would describe her? Well, I never got to meet Frida because she died in 2009, just a couple of years before I found out about her story. But from her family, from all the people all over the world I've spoken to who worked alongside her, the one thing that they always agree on is that she was very diplomatic and she was very relaxed and could put anyone at her ease. Now, I've seen lots of film footage of her when she's been giving speeches all over the world uh, and, of course, in this SBS documentary, and she's very um, clear about explaining things. She, doesn't use, she didn't use big, long words. Um, she seemed to speak on an equal platform to any person in the world, and I think she was absolutely diplomatic in the way that she treated people equally. Her... Her um, ambition 
and her success moved quite rapidly, didn't it, Lisa? After the, was it after the war that, that that started, where she started to go overseas a lot more? Yes, uh, that was after um, the mid-1950s she started going overseas, working for both the Communist Party and the organisation which she joined in the 50s, which was the Union of Australian Women. Now, that was pretty much sort of the women's arm of the Communist Party, although it had lots of members who weren't communists at all. Um, but she was um, increasingly travelling overseas from about the 1950s up until 1990. And um, the most things she did actually were overseas. The Union of Australian Women was um, a member of a much bigger organisation, which was the Women's International Democratic Federation. It had its headquarters in Europe, and it actually had about 200 million members. Wow. Yeah, it was um, an amazing organisation, and like Frieda's part in history, it's really been underplayed because um, of its left-wing origins. But Frida rose through the ranks of the Women's International Democratic Federation um, very rapidly in the course of about 10 years. And in 1975, um, from 20 years, 10 years ago, starting um, as an ordinary member, she became its president. She worked alongside people, um, the world leaders, um, Nikita Khrushchev, Angela Davis, Indira Gandhi, Fidel Castro. Actually, she thought Fidel Castro was the most devastatingly um, charming human being she'd ever met. Um, she worked in the United Nations at the highest level as a, a, a representative of a, a non-government organisation. And um, she did work all over the world. Why, why is it that she is not more recognised in, in Australian history? Well, I think there's, um, there's kind of a number of, of, of reasons for that. And I certainly think the first reason is that she's a woman. Um, absolutely it's the case that throughout Australian history, women who've achieved things have been um, consistently um, ignored or their achievements have been minimised by many, many historians in the 20th century in particular. So I think that's one reason. But I also think because um, her, her communist views were really considered, I guess, a bit of... Um, uh, a bit antithetical towards the mainstream Australian views, although what she was doing was arguing for peace and equality and justice, which most people these days would think would be the right thing to do. Um, and the third reason I think that she's been completely overlooked in history up until the last few years is because that she is because of actually when she was born. She fell between the early suffragette movement, the first generation feminists, and the second wave of feminists who um, came of age in the 1970s, people like Germaine Greer and the younger generation. So I think there's a number of reasons why she's been completely um, on, undermined in terms of her achievements being recognised up till now. But in the, in the co context of... Uh what was going on in the background being the Cold War, I guess um, it wouldn't have been um, politically um, profitable to be seen hobnobbing with Khrushchev and, and, um, and Castro at the time, would you say? Well, you see, she didn't see it that way. She thought that if she was going to fight for, for her aims, which were justice and peace and equality, then she needed to go and speak to these people who had more influence than her. Uh, but certainly the Australian government thought otherwise. Um, ASIO kept um, 
for decades, ASIO kept um, surveillance of Frida and her work, and she's actually got 38 volumes of ASIO files. Was she, was she um, followed everywhere, was she? She was pretty much followed everywhere. She had a phone tapped at home and at work. Um, there's a lot of travel records there. There's a lot of um, reports from people, obviously women who um, posed as members of the organisation she worked for, discussing um, what Frida said to her and things like that. Um, the files are amazing. There's um, photographs of her and her daughter and her husband there, um, and the ASIO files are, are incredibly voluminous. How did you acquire these files, um, Lisa? Well, ASIO has, um, for many files and many parts of the files, um, an open access policy, and as long as you know how to get into the archives, which are publicly available, mm. you can find out if someone's got um, a surveillance record or not. Now, um, I asked for the files to be digitised, which would help in my record, but yes. they were all there anyway. There's certainly lots of big blacked-out sections, sections yes. that the Australian government has refused to um, declassify, but I would say about sort of 70, 75% of... Frida's 38 volumes are openly accessible and you can just go online and look at them like you can for many people in Australia. And what, what surprised you the most reading through those files? Um, the things they got wrong, actually. Um, the things, you know, whilst for me as a researcher, the ASIO files were useful in that they took photocopies of mm -hmm. quite a lot of things like Frida's travel records. Mm -hmm. um, the assumptions that they made about... about um, Human choice and human decisions, often they got amazingly wrong. Um, and, you know, there's a, there's a few uh, instances of that in everyone's files. Um, so I think it's um, those sorts of human decisions. And the fact that they, you know, wasted so much time on, on, the on chasing the activities of this woman who all she really wanted was to fight for equality and peace and justice. But what is it that was so misunderstood? Um, if, if that was the claim she was making all, uh, all along, what is it that the government didn't understand? Oh, well, then you'd have to go into the whole story of, of the Australian government and uh, many Western nations' government's opposition to communism. Whilst communism in Australia um, was not illegal, the um, Australian government did did make it an illegal operation for quite a few years um, and talked about its, its threatening nature to, um, to the establishment. Um, but if you have a look at what Frieda actually did and what she was trying to do, um, she wasn't trying to overthrow the government in any big way. She was trying to fight for the rights of Australians, particularly women and children, particularly for migrants and Indigenous Australians and people outside Australia as well. And um, those sorts of things weren't something the Australian government, particularly in the middle of the century, would take lightly. They saw that as a threat. For example, when Frida would speak at an overseas conference, on the injustices that the Australian government was perpetuating on Indigenous Australians, for example, um, you know, there was a lot of criticism from the ASIO agents about that. Of, of all her achievements, what, what do you think is her crowning glory, Lisa? Oh, that's a very good question. Um, OK, I think of all her achievements, her crowning glory is that for 40 years she acted as 
a conduit, a communications network person between Australian progressive women and the rest of the world. Because she did so much work overseas and she still had very strong connections to her Australian organisation, the Union of Australian Women, she was able to have some amazing networking opportunities, <coughs> bringing Australian information and visits to the rest of the world and bringing overseas people who were activists or politicians back here. And so she acted as a conduit between Australia and the rest of the world for these progressive ideals that she was fighting for. Wow, remarkable woman. It, it, remarkable, but uh, you know, what would you say, I mean, how much of an impact do you think um, she had on the development of this nation and the, uh, the rights of Australian women uh, when she did bring back those ideas? Like, what kind of, what kind of processes did she trigger? Well, um, I'll give you an example. One of the things was um, how 1975 was for the whole world, officially um, in every world, the International Women's Year. Now, yes. Frida and her organisation actually were the ones who suggested that to the United Nations. And that wouldn't have happened unless Frida had um, about four decades of political um, um, training, her activism behind her, and the networking skills to be able to get to the United Nations as um, um, she was then the Vice President of the Women's International Democratic Federation and make this suggestion and talk to people about it and lobby for it. And... Um, I'm just doing some work at the moment, actually, on what the International Women's Year did for women in Australia, because it came at the time of the short-lived Whitlam government. It had lots and lots of um, actually really interesting immediate achievements. And 1975 did bring changes in laws, especially for equal pay, to women everywhere. Her, her life was remarkable and she did some remarkable things, but she also had some tough times as well, didn't she, Lisa? She had some very tough times. She spent time, um, for example, in North Vietnam at the height of the war um, under her own personal threat. She visited Hanoi, actually illegally, to um, bring funds to women in Vietnam. Spent time in um, Palestine and South Africa um, and other war-torn nations at the height of their conflict, so that she could see firsthand uh, what was happening. She went to refugee camps in the 60s and 70s, um, and she um, spent time talking to people who were under immediate threat of their lives and trying to change things for them. So, how can people get a hold of the book, Lisa? Well, they can go online to Amazon or Booktopia and get it um, as an e-book. Um, and my publisher, Tim and Dira Press, sells the hard copies and they're, they're available online. Frida was able to stand up for what she believed in for so long um, and to do so much from, you know, her little family home in, in Bondi and not be a... Um, chauvinistic, hedonistic, egotistical person at the end of it all, but a very modest woman, uh, is amazing. On that note, I don't think there's any more that can, that no. can be said, Lisa. No. It, a remarkable Australian, and she should be she Honoured. should be held in the highest regard. Thank you so much, both of you, for your interest. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Thank Lisa. You, Lisa. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Okay, thanks. Bye. Bye.
I guess we're on. So welcome back to another episode of Float Your Boat, listeners. And this is a follow-up to... Ready, boy? To Dr. Lisa Milner. Yes, hello, everybody. Yes, hello, everybody. And uh, today we've got Kilty in the studio. And we've interviewed Kilty before about the Save Bondi Pavilion... We did, yep. Um, ...project. I guess it was a project. But now that she's saved Bondi Pavilion, she has nothing to do. So that's why she's on our show. And today we're recording, <laughs> listeners, in a new studio at Bondi Pavilion, which we're very excited about because uh-huh. we're at Bondi Pavilion. Yes. And it hasn't been taken over by those people. And and if they could see us, I feel like I'm in a big wooden crate. Yeah. It feels that way, doesn't it? Yeah, it does feel that way. It's pretty exciting to be here, though. I've it never recorded in Bondi Pavilion. Well, it's always exciting having you on our show. You're becoming a regular. Well, thanks, George. You, maybe it's you'd good to be with you guys. Th- you'd become the third leg in a, um, a triumvirate of, yeah. um, uh, of podcasts. What was that word? Triumvirate. Triumvirate. Uh, I've never heard that word. No, Because I went to school, Brett. <clears throat> I went Excuse to school. Me. Did you? Where did mm. you? Really? I, used to I went to a really special school. You could only be sent by a judge. <laughs> Oh, that was the kind of special school I was thinking of. Anyway, <laughs> anyway here we are. So we, we, we got the lowdown on, on your grandmother from a professional perspective and what she did when she was out of Australia or in, on the political scene um, within the party, the movement that she, cre- that she was part of. Um, but you, Kilty, knew her as your nan. Yes, yes. She was a fantastic nana. I feel um, very lucky to have been so close to her and have had her such an intimate part of my life. Um, I knew that she was politically active and there was discussions around the table, but it wasn't the first most important thing for her in her time with us. Her time with us was um, spent at our house and often at the beach. The beach was a very special place to her family. They grew up in Erskineville to a very, very poor family. Um, The depression was approaching and they spent a lot of time at the beach. They'd often walk from Erskineville to Coogee, to Wiley's Baths or to Bondi Mm. or sometimes even over to Manly and they'd save the money they would have spent on um, the tram or the bus uh, for a few lollies on the way home. So... It was free to go to the beach and mm. I think that's why it formed such a special part of such a working class poor family's life. Mm-hmm. And they just love the water. And it's interesting, we were talking about it recently, her and all the siblings ended up living by the coast. Interesting. I mean, I, I, I picture her as a, <clears throat> you know, short back and sides, uh, you know, card carrying, suit wearing, cigarette smoking, you know, <laughs> You know, railing against the machine kind of woman, but she wasn't any of that, was she? No, no, not she, at all. Was she? So explain to me, was she colourful? Because all we have is sepia shots of your gran, your nan. Was she a very colourful woman? Um, she wasn't overly colourful. I think she was, you know, conservatively dressed and, um, you know, had short graying hair and would have looked like any, any other grandmother going around. She was terribly proud of her grandkids. She absolutely adored her family. She'd grown up in a really loving family environment, very poor but very, very loving and mm. very inclusive and very caring. She was the eldest of three children and her father believed that she could do anything that her brothers could do and it instilled in her from an early age 
uh, equality and fairness and uh, and also the need to work hard to to achieve and to um, to involve other people in that. Her father was very political, so she grew up in a political house. And I think that gave her some really early lessons that stayed with her her entire life and were instilled in us in a kind of subconscious, unaware way. But the point of um, not working for people but working with people and taking people along with you on the journey and educating people about their rights, about equality, about fairness was at the heart of everything that she did. And she loved to body surf. That was that was one of the things that stuck out to me at the uh, launch. That she was a pretty keen body surfer and fairly competitive in the body surfing yeah, arena she, with the family. Yeah, she loved to body surf. Um, as she she says um, said herself, her husband was a better body surfer than her. Her hips held her back, but her <laughs> husband taught her daughter, my mum, to body surf and she was body surfing at quite a young age when there weren't many girls out and about body surfing. Mm. And, uh, and do you body surf? I do body surf but I'm not quite in the same league. But it does bring my mum a great deal of pleasure when she's at the beach in summer with us all and my kids are body surfing and we're body surfing and there's three generations on a wave. That's kind of the ultimate for my mum. Yeah, we we truly enjoy body surfing. I mean, that's a beautiful thing, right? But my childbearing, Greek childbearing hips hold me back too. Uh, That's why I always make it to the beach and we don't. That's true. You're like the nana and you're the granddad. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. (laughs) <laughs> but, but was it um, for her? Was it was it something that she was a bit of a pioneer in? In the sense that I can't imagine in her teens that there were too many female body surfers. Or no. am I wrong? I, I don't think there would have been many. I don't think even in my mum's generation. When she was learning to body surf as a young girl, there were many body surfers. It was something that brought my grandma great pleasure being around Bondi and just seeing so many girls with surfboards going to the beach. That had been a huge change mm. in her life. Sure. And these simple things that we take for granted now are things that brought her great joy. It was also when she saw so many men and fathers pushing prams back when she had kids she never saw men pushing prams and she loved that the simplicity of a father just taking their child for a walk on their own. The, mm. the thing that strikes me so much about um, your grand or your nan's story is that to me she should be hailed as a hero in this country and she's not. And, and she was just a as as you you probably they rightly said in the interview with uh, Lisa she was just a normal woman that really wanted to get out there and do some good things. Yeah, look, she was. That's why we were really appreciative that um, Lisa's taken the time and the research to complete this book and mm. put put record it. To be honest, if Nana was still alive, she wouldn't have let it happen. Mm. She um she just didn't want people to really know her story. She would appreciate the movement story being told. Um, But I think you're right. I think it is a story that should be celebrated Mm -hmm. and told. And I think it's a story that a lot of people can learn from. Mm. Um, Being committed to yourself, being committed to your family and being committed to a better world are really important principles that we can all take something from. She worked incredibly hard. Um, often with long times away from her family. 
But it didn't, she had a very supportive husband and a very, very loving relationship. Um, a commitment of over 50 years until sadly my grandfather died, got Alzheimer's disease and that was a terribly hard time for our family. But she started as a very young woman travelling around Australia into small country towns, um, communicating her point, communicating about um, Aboriginal rights and the Aboriginal referendum, raising money for war bonds, um, talking about you know, the injustices and um, the issues going on with Menzies and Japan and fascism, a really important struggles that she assisted to um, bring to rural Australia and wider Australian audiences. And then she was elevated and took that work, work overseas. And I think for a young woman from Erskineville to be elected as an international president of a UN-recognised women's organisation is just incredible. And the trust and the goodwill that she was received with by so many countries um, is, a, is a great compliment to, to who she was and how she conducted herself. I just uh, wonder, I mean, so she's right up there with the likes of Annette Kellerman who, you know, dared to wear a bikini in the early 1900s and, and she was a female swimmer. She flaunted her body a lot and she was um, um, uh, well recognised as a woman that was very independent, never took no for an answer. Is that how you saw your nan um, as a child or she was very different? Because I can imagine in her professional life, no was not something that she would actually <coughs> take easily. Um, I didn't see that. Like I was just a young child who had a grandma who loved me and played games with us and read books and it wasn't overly political, our relationship. It wasn't something that she, you know, spent a lot of time educating on, us on. It was mm. just a really loving grandma um, who helped out. They, my grandparents were often with us for dinner every night of the week. Mm. We, were, we were very close. So for me growing up, I didn't see that. I see her as I get older and I understand more in my adult life. When I became an adult, my grandma had finished her political career and she was, to be honest, a little bit over it all in a way. She'd nursed my grandfather through some pretty bad health. She'd given a lot of herself for many decades and what she appreciated the most was her family and going for a walk on the beach and wasn't incredibly keen to socialise much further than that. But you could see it when she bump into people, turn on her charisma and her charm. When I did organise a few smaller things um, in my early adulthood, just some little tips from her that now I look back on were kind of key organising um, strategies and ways. And it was deep inside her. I think one of the things that she felt was one of the biggest contributions of her generation was the fact that they've made room for people to speak out and feel okay to work towards change. Like she said, you might not always agree what, with what people are protesting about, but their right to protest is there and their right to be on the street is there. And stand up. If you don't agree with something, don't just whine and complain about it. Talk to others about what you can do to change that. 
And that applies locally and it applies globally. And that's what, um, that's what she just really executed all the time. Was the movement that she, I assume, almost, she was like the, the head of that movement, right? Yeah, she was the president of the International Women's Federation for, I don't know, 15 or 20 years. And is that movement now still a big movement? Um, look, I think it's it's changed, but it is still it is still you know operating, mm. and you know, as I said earlier, it was recognised by the United Nations. She met and was held in great esteem by m- a number of world leaders and held, hosted conferences with them. But she was also often the first to be invited in. Like our generation grows up with Facebook and if there's something going on in the world, you can t- tap onto your news feed or Facebook or Twitter and you'll get a pretty instant update about what's going on. But this is a time when there was none of this digital communication. Mm. She would often be one of the first people to be invited into a war zone or when they there have been a terrible, you know, abuse of power and atrocities have been made to witness what was going on and to come back and report it to other people, to allow a movement to grow around that. She was over in Vietnam when the war was raging. She was on the, she was taken to the front line. She was in the tunnel. She was exposing what was happening to the women and children. This stuff is viewed as very political, but really it was all about fairness and healthcare and well-being, often for women and children, often with tens of thousands of lives at stake. Mm. Um, she worked with many people around the world. They raised millions of dollars and opened a, um, a maternity hospital in Hanoi, which which she cut the ribbon for, which still stands to this day. She worked with um, African women to expose what was going on under the apartheid regime. They took women out of South Africa to travel to other African countries to talk about their stories. And this is the only way that people became aware of what was happening in these in these different places around the world. There was no other way to communicate out without bringing people in and sending them away with this information to share to share around the world. And it resonated with people because people have their own children. People understand parenting and how hard life is in our beautiful country that is Australia, let alone with a war raging in Vietnam or, um, you know, atrocities that were happening in Palestine. So, you know, that was a fundamental part of her work and I suppose um, when their 10-year fall of apartheid happened, she was invited to the celebrations over in South Africa and she wouldn't go. And my brother and I attended on her behalf. And that's when it really hit me um, to what level she was held because we were the only white people in this huge room of dignitaries who had been key parts of the fall of apartheid. And she was awarded a special honour to thank her for her role in in bringing that, bringing that information to the attention of others and working tirelessly to assist the downfall of apartheid. And that was a pretty special moment for us to really realise mm. her as a person, not mm. just as our nana. I mean, that's absolutely amazing. And once again, getting back to Brett's point, it's amazing that she's not referred to more often mm. here. I wonder how those countries refer to her in, in their history books. Are, is she referred to in any way? Are they... Is she still venerated? 
in some of the countries that she did her good work in? Look, she certainly is. Um, when we're in South Africa, to to what extent, you know, the knowledge is there. But when we're in South Africa, you know, this has been um, 20, 30 years since she was actively there mm. and um, at least 15 years since she was working on the world scene and they knew her intimately and well and they were so proud and appreciative of us going there. And it's like that in a few other countries around the world. And I think some of this information that Lisa's been able to tap into, um, you know, shows that. I guess um, what always strikes me as amazing is I could be in the surf and bump into your nan on a wave and she's just a normal person. But really she's a superhero in some ways mm. and to some people. Mm. And I think that goes for lots of people. You just don't know sometimes, no. do you? No, you don't. And you I don't. think she loved that about the beach, though. She loved that, you know, everyone was in their swimmers and everyone was just equal. You didn't really know, you know, their story or their, you know, apparent greatness or what they really thought of themselves. Everyone was stripped down to their bathers and so the she, same. So she didn't go out of a way to shield you from any of the stuff that she was getting up to, but she was just um, co cognizant of wanting to be with family when she was with family and not have her mind elsewhere and her conversation drift back to what she was doing professionally. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. Look, there was political talk that went, went, you know, went on around the dinner table and in the background, but we were, you know, three kids who didn't really care that much, mm. you know, <laughs> like what kids are like. seemed to have changed a little bit. Yeah, well, it's interesting. I spoke to my mum about this because it's certainly not something that was ever pushed onto us or expected of us, you know. You kind of, we were brought up to work hard and do your best and, you know, take opportunities that come your way. But obviously somewhere along the way it's completely rubbed off mm. and the same kind of values that she has and some of the skills, not all of the skills, even without knowing or them being taught to me have been instilled and I have been able to benefit from and I'm incredibly grateful for that. But not just the political stuff, really how you live your life. You know, you live your life um, doing the best you can each day. You treat everyone around you with fairness and if you have an opportunity to get involved to change something, get involved and do it. Don't stand on the side and complain and whinge and wait for someone else to do it. Oh. And treat everyone the same. You know, and you're not better than anyone and no one's better than you. Well, out, outside of all of her amazing achievements, yeah. it was this, is there one thing that you remember most about you, Nan? There's something, you know, you know like my grandfather, mm. I remember he was a, a carpenter but I always remember the stern talks he used to give me or the, or the sayings he loved quotes. Yeah, was there, um, was there... Look, there were a few things I suppose that stick with me the most. The nice ones are she used to pick us up from school a lot and um, we'd always go to the cake, be allowed to go to the cake shop and, you know, get something. Get the lemo. Yeah, the, <laughs> the cream with the cream oh. on top and no one else, you know, we oh, weren't to tell mum. And she used to um, do yoga with me in, as she got older, she used to do it here at the pavilion actually. She learnt yoga after my grandfather died and um, she'd, you know, get, teach me different things and that was something that we enjoyed doing together. Um, and I suppose in adulthood something that did um, weigh heavily on my heart was 
people didn't know, but she actually had a second child, my grandmother, and um, it, the child died a couple of days after birth. And it's something because of the time she never spoke about and she only opened up the, for the first time when I had my first child. So that's, you know, like 50 years later. And um, having ha- had my own baby at that time and being in love with my baby and seeing mm. life from a different perspective, it really hit me how much hurt she must have carried for all of those years. Mm. And my grandfather was a very um, easygoing man and Nana was much more worried about things, worried about what we were doing or coming home. She worried a lot more and she wasn't as easygoing. And that kind of gave it some context as well. Mm. Um, And it was also something that she was very happy when I had children at how much life and birth had changed in terms of the fathers being in the room, the fathers being a part of, of that process. Her husband wasn't allowed to, you know, be with her you know, during this extraordinarily horrible time. Mm. Uh, so that was, um, yeah, something that gave it a bit of context and I was pleased that she finally found the opportunity in her life to really open up and talk, talk about that. Mm. And I think because of the type of work she did and she was very political and she worked a lot that people had an assumption that she chose to have one child Right. And because um, she didn't want it, she wanted to focus more on her career, but um, it couldn't be further from the truth and she couldn't have any more children after that. So when I had children, she was very happy and she described people as having lots of children as being truly rich and she yeah. thought that that was, uh, you know, the ultimate in the family. So for me then to have had, she met three of my children um, and we were very close in her old age for that experience to have been shared was, um, you know, incredibly special. And now for my kids now they're a bit older, for the book to have been written and for them to be reawoken to who their great-grandmother was through the launches and they haven't, you know, obviously read the book but um, that's been a special time for our family as well. They have some big boots to fill. Yeah, I mean, well, mums, you know. Mums, no, not really. and great-grandmas. We, <laughs> we don't really need to fill each other's boots but hopefully they get some inspiration along the way. No, I, de- I definitely love the fact that, there's a history of, well, in your family of just being humbly going about your business a, a, of creating fairness in the world. That's, that's, that's a beautiful thing that you're not, you know, self-aggrandising. You're not inflating your egos. You're doing it, you're doing it out of fairness for everyone. Yeah. That's a, that's a beautiful thing. It's something that I think maybe, oh, have we lost it or, or it's, it's not showing its face as often because of, um, mm. I guess, the selfish nature mm. of, self, um, of um, social media where people are focused on themselves mm. and about what they're up to and yeah. how wonderful my life is and yeah. hashtag um, blessed. And mm. Hashtag it, grateful, ha- my favourite hashtag. Yes. <laughs> hashtag so lucky, <laughs> so lucky to be here. I <laughs> oh, don't get started. <laughs> you know. but, but it's not something that we see now that this genuine concern for others 
Yeah. Um, it's not – well, if it exists, it's probably not being promoted as much as cats and dog videos. Yeah. Look, I think you're right, but I think it still does exist. And that's what being in the pavilion campaign at least showed me locally – that it really does exist. There's a lot of there's a lot of good people around, and there's a lot of good people who are working towards, you know, ha- still having the world in a, you know, being fairer mm. and being more equal. It's done it's done in different ways, but you're also right. You know, ego and selfishness gets in the way of good people doing good things and having better outcomes. And you know, it's not something that drives me. It's not something that assists me. And you know, I'm quite content. ...being a little bit of a step back, to be honest. So... No, let me ask one more question before you have yours. So if your grandmother was alive today and had to... ...you would say... ...what would she say to you about what you just achieved? What do you think she would say? Oh, she would have been stoked. Bondi was her face. She travelled to pretty much nearly every country, to be honest... ...around the world in her time. She loved Bondi. Her heart was in Bondi. Her ashes are scattered off the headland of Bondi. This was her favourite place in the world. Her, her and my grandfather would walk up and down the beach discussing the problems and solving the problems of the world. This was her happy place. We um, celebrated the end of her life in the Bondi Pavilion. We celebrated her life, I should say. We celebrated my grandfather's life here. The Bondi Pavilion has a special place in our family and our heart. When she was a little girl, they used to come here. Her brothers would play handball out the back. This is somewhere that's gone through the generations of our family. So she would have been incredibly proud too and she would have been involved in it too. I mean, her brother sadly died before we won the pavilion campaign but he was alive um, for the first three quarters of it and he was incredibly proud and he was a part of it. He was a part of it because it was a part of him. And, um, you know, I would have obviously Nana died a long time ago but Uncle Ray died throughout the campaign. I would have loved him to see see it to the end because he also enjoyed a good party <laughs> and he would have been, you know, <laughs> enjoying the party with us. Sounds like sounds like he, he would have enjoyed a party with a name like Ray. Ray, <laughs> Uncle Ray. <laughs> so did, did your Nan have favourite type of music or song? I hadn't thought about asking you this pre oh, right. the interview, but I, I thought, was there a song that you remember that she liked a lot? Well, she loved Cole Porter. Her right. and my younger brother used wow. to bond over that. I didn't say much bond over that. <laughs> she, she Cole Porter's it. pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I'll, fi- I'll find something appropriate for the for this mm. interview. Mm. Thanks, Kilty. Thanks, Thanks for coming guys. in. Thanks for, Absolute pleasure. Thanks for, Thanks for having me. When the little bluebird was never said a word Starts to sing spring, spring And the little bluebell in the bottom of the dell Starts to ring, ding, ding When a little blue clock in the middle of the park Sings a tune to the moon up above It is nature that's all simply telling us to fall in love And that's why chinks do it, japs do it Up in left and it laughs do it, that's falling down In Spain the best upper sets do it Lithuanians and let's do it So let's do it Let's fall in love The Dutch 
in old Amsterdam do it, not to mention the Finns. Folk in Siam do it, think of Siamese twins. Some Argentines without means do it. People say in Boston even beans do it. So let's do it, let's fall in love. Romantic sponges, they say do it. Oysters down in Oyster Bay do it. Let's do it, let's fall in love. Cold Cape Cod clams gains their wish do it. Even lazy jellyfish do it. So let's do it, let's fall in love. The most refined schools of cod do it. Though it shocks them, I fear. Sturgeon, thank God, do it. Have some caviar, dear. In shallow shoals, Dover souls do it. Goldfish in the privacy of bowls do it. So let's do it. That's falling down. The dragonfly in their reeds do it. Sentimental centipedes do it. Let's do it. Let's fall in down. Mosquitoes, heaven forbid. Do it. So does every Katie did do it. Let's do it. Let's fall in love. The most refined lady bugs do it. When a gentleman calls, moths in your rugs do it. What's the use of moth balls? Locusts in trees do it. Bees do it. Even overeducated fleas do it. Let's do it. Let's fall in love. The chimpanzees in the zoos do it. Some courageous kangaroos do it. Let's do it. Let's fall in love. Mm, I'm sure giraffes on the side do it. Heavy hippopotami do it. Let's do it. Let's fall in love. Old sloths who hang down from twigs do it. Though the effort is great. Guinea pigs do it. Buy a couple and wait. We know that bears in their pits do it. Even Pekingese at the Ritz do it. Let's do it. Let's fall in love.